please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 2. Continue preaching through Hebrews 2 this morning. Now, just in context, what's been talked about in Hebrews 1 is the high, exalted nature of Christ above all the angels. And then Hebrews 2 continues addressing that, but in the context of Christ's humility that ex- he experienced here on earth. So when you have Hebrews 2, please stand for the reading of God's word. Begin in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You may be seated. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great truth we have regarding Jesus Christ, of his rule over all things and his rule over us. We thank you for this great and mighty king that you have given us, and we thank you for his ministry here on earth, that he voluntarily humbled himself, and by that is greatly exalted. And Lord, we ask that you would assist us to follow in his footsteps, having the mind of Christ, not exalting ourselves over others, but being serving. Lord, I pray that you would uh, grant us these things and that you would give us eyes that would see Christ more clearly. In his name we pray, amen. So as I have said, the previous chapter talks about these glories of Christ. He is the heir of all things. He is higher than the angels. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Now all these things are true, and yet... We do not now see all things in subjection under his feet. We do not yet see everyone in submission to Jesus Christ. All things have been subjected to him, but we do not yet see the fullness of this fulfillment. And how is the Christian supposed to deal with that? We live in a world where we proclaim this kingship of Jesus Christ. We proclaim his rule above all things. And we have to do this to a world who looks at the situation and they do not see him ruling over all things. And so how are we to be believed? And moreover, how are we to endure and continue on when we are proclaiming something that is not now fully seen? How are we supposed to have that endurance? How are we supposed to resist temptation knowing that what our king is offering is better? How are we supposed to continue on in this world where the fullness of what has been promised has not yet been seen? Well, that is what this passage here addresses. It addresses 
what we are to think of this one to whom all things have been subjected, and yet we do not see them all in subjection. We will see that Christ experienced a temporary humility in order that he might be glorified and that this has implications for ourselves in this world that we live in. That it too is in a poor condition, in a temporary humiliated state before it will be renewed. And likewise, we must undergo humility similar to our Savior, following in his footsteps as we are conformed into his image before we will experience that glory. But that these things are indeed temporary. They indeed are only for a season and that all things are subjected to him. And because of that, we will one day see all things subjected to him. So let's begin with the very simple truth that all things have been put in subjection to him. It says here, now in putting everything in subjection to him, this is in the middle of verse 8, that's where we'll begin the preaching this morning. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. All things have been put in subjection to him. All things everywhere. Now consider what this includes. This includes kings. He is indeed the king of kings. He is high above every king. Now, a lot of kings consider themselves to truly be sovereigns, to not be accountable to any man, but this is not the case, for Christ rules over them. And if he rules over them, then we should not be dismayed when we do not see political situations working out the way we would like to see them work out. But we should recognize that there is a king who is above all these things, and there is no cause for anxiety, because he indeed reigns even when we don't see it. He is above all things. He is above the events in history that have taken place, have taken place according to his will. All these things are true. Now consider also what it says in the words of Ephesians 1.22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head. This is speaking of the Father to the Son. The Father gave the Son as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is the head of the church. Now, if he is the head of the church and the the body is growing to meet his image, and this gives us no cause for concern or anxiety when we see things going poorly in this church and the institutional church across the world. He is the head. He is over the church. There is no one else who is above it, but he is over it and he is in control. It gives us the guarantee that everything will end up right for the church because he will grow the church into what it should be as he rules over the church. Those who claim to have authority over the church in ways that they do not, heretics, false prophets, all kinds of people who put themselves and replace Christ and replace his teaching over the church, though we do not yet see them in subjection to Christ, they are indeed in subjection to him, and we can be assured that as he rules over them, that rule will one day become manifest. And so while there is every reason to have a right concern about difficulties within your own local church life or things you see in the church at large, 
There's no reason to be anxious about the end state of things because Christ will not lose. It is not that he is fighting for a reign that he might one day have it, and there's some possibility of him failing. Rather, he already reigns. He is already seated on that throne, and he already has finished his work. As he declared on the cross, it is finished. At that point, he defeated death itself, so that death itself is under his reign. Now, we still see death in this world. We still see uh, plagues. We still see temporary lifespans. But it is the case that Christ reigns over death, and we can be assured that death will cease. This is why the Christian has far greater hope than anyone else, and far greater hope than one who has their trust in another god or no god at all. It's because not that we will not experience death. It is, uh, I, I can't say what the likelihood is that Christ will return before your life is over. It is very likely that you will experience death. However, we have a great hope. We do not have to go into that death uh, with a state of despair and misery because we know not that Christ may one day conquer death, but that he already has conquered death and that he reigns over it. And because of that, we will certainly be resurrected. Now, it is also the case that Christ reigns over salvation itself. It says in Matthew, in Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things have been given to him, subjected to him. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see how many things have been given to him? Just, it, it goes beyond just this physical world that you see. It goes into even that administration of salvation. No one comes to the Father except for the one that Christ brings to the Father. There are many people who claim they believe that Christ is over all things and in charge of all things and reigns over all things. But then when it comes to those details, like whether or not he is sovereign over salvation, they take that sovereignty away and they give it to someone else. But no, Christ is even, he is head over the church, he is head over kings, he is head over death, he is, he is even over the administration of salvation itself. So that those that he draws to him are most certainly saved, and any he does not draw to him are not saved. Christ is in charge of even salvation. You see, all things have been given over to this conquering Son of God. This is the case. This is the case with all things. And finally, the last enemy to be defeated is death. He has conquered death itself. So there's no cause for worry. There's no cause for anxiety in a world where the king that rules above all is a good king. Even if you do not see all things in subjection to him, they are indeed in subjection to him. You don't need to be anxious when you see things not going the way that you think that God would have them to go. You do not have to worry that maybe things are outside his control. I don't know if you know this, but many people... Uh, claiming the name of Christ, teach that things are outside of God's control because they don't want you to look at this world 
and be discouraged by what you see and say, this is under God's control? Well, it doesn't seem like he has a lot of control. I don't know if I can trust his control. And so they say, well, maybe it's better if we just say it's not under God's control at all. No, it is under his control, and it is going exactly according to his plan. Now, that plan is not your plan, and so as you see things in your life not go the way you expect them to go, that is to be expected because his wisdom is higher than your wisdom. But you must trust that his wisdom is indeed higher, and therefore you have no cause for anxiety. You have no cause for worry. And more, if it is the case that he is above all things, that he reigns above all, we must honor him as king. We must honor him with, for example, our time. We must give our time to him. He has called us to worship him on this day, on the Lord's day. We must give our time to him. We must give our service to him in all things, recognizing that he has called us away from sin, away from temptation. We must honor him as the king that he is, we must honor him with the resources he's given us, the physical resources, the finances that we have. You know, so many people are uh, deciding which mites they are going to give God from a heart that does not feel that he is truly in control and he is truly above all things. You're, they're doing so out of some... Uh, some feeling that is not owed to him, but rather it is out of my own uh, goodness and kindness that I would uh, do such things. And so I need to do so in such a way to ensure my own self-preservation. This is about where I think is, is reasonable. Now, certainly, you do not want to uh, embrace the false mindset that God has called everyone to a life of poverty and you need to give absolutely everything to the church or anything like that. However, he is above all things, and that includes every single resource that you have, because he has given you every single resource that you have. And so it must be stewarded, not with a heart that says that I am uh, out of my own benevolence giving this to God, but rather a heart that recognizes that he is already over it, and I am giving to him what is already rightfully his. And so I should be generous with this, knowing that he will do what is right with it, and that he is the one who supplied it in the first place. God is above all things, and so he must be honored as the one who is above all things. You know, if you had, if you had a container, some kind of bag in which you could place all things that Christ is over, if you were to do that, if you were to put everything in it, it would still not be enough, because the bag itself belongs to God. Space itself belongs to God. Time belongs to Jesus Christ, who reigns over everything. Abstract things like the administration of salvation belong to him. You see, this is not just talking about this physical world. It is talking about all the non-physical things, all the spiritual things, all the abstract concepts. All these things belong to Jesus Christ, and he reigns over all of them. And this is not a reign that he is fighting for. It is a reign that he already has now. However, it is the case that even though that is true, we do not yet see it as true. It says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And then the uh, verse 8 ends. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What is what is 
the situation that we see. How is it that he can be seated at the right hand of the throne of God? He can be above all the angels, and we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Well, the answer to all this is, it is God's purpose. It is the purpose of Christ that these things be done in an orderly fashion. Not that his reign, while immediate, be manifested immediately, but rather that it be manifested progressively. Now, it is implied in this that this is a temporary situation, and speaking in a moment of the temporary humility of Christ, that likewise the temporary state of this world is, as I said, only temporary. And this is explained more explicitly in other passages. For example, if you'll please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'll give you a minute to turn there. This passage speaks of the resurrection of the dead and how all things have been subjected to Jesus Christ. It quotes the same passage that we see quoted here uh, in Hebrews 2. It's, it quotes Psalm 8 as we looked at that last week. This same passage says the, uh, quotes the same verse and explains this reality of the fact that all things have been put in subjection under his feet, and yet we do not yet see it. So let's begin in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he is the firstfruits of those who have, been fall, who have fallen asleep. He has been resurrected from the dead. Others will also be resurrected from the dead. It is necessary that his resurrection come first. So there you're beginning to see that there's a necessary order of things. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall all be made alive. Adam sinned and so brought condemnation upon all men. Christ has died in the place of those who trust in him, and for his people he has defeated death in one life. And so it continues on, but each to his own order. Each to his own order. You know, that's important. There's an order that God has prescribed. There's an order that Christ is enforcing. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So do you see all the thens that are being used? You know, then this, then that, then that. There is an order to these things that he has his purposes in the playing out of the events of history. It is his purpose that things be as they are now. The wicked that you see in the world doing wicked things, it is his purpose that these enemies be conquered one by one in a way that we see. The last enemy to be destroyed, destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. There's that verse again from Psalm 8 that was quoted in Hebrews 2. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There is a fulfillment that's happening, and it is happening progressively, and it is happening for God's purposes. Now, neither this passage 
this narrow passage that we're looking at in Hebrews 2 explains explicitly everything, and neither does that one in 1 Corinthians 15, all of God's purposes in doing things progressively the way he has. However, it does let us know that he does have a purpose in doing this progressively, and we can gather from Scripture the reasons why he has done this. No, it is very evident from elsewhere, and as we continue reading on in Hebrews 2, it will emphasize the fact that part of the reason why he has done this is so that he will be one with his brothers. In other words, we must go through the same kind of suffering and humiliation, while not uh, redemptive as his is, while not, uh, while not substitutionary as his is, he has called us to walk in his footsteps so that we might be made in his image. And it is necessary that these things take place this way. If you bypass this, you bypass the, uh, a significant portion of God's plan for humanity and for the glorification of him, who is all in all. As we talked about when we were looking at the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. God is disposing all things to his glory. If he were to skip this step in his plan, not all things would be disposed for his glory. It's that simple. Now, it's much more complicated when you look at the details of all he's doing, and he has not revealed to us all the details of what he's doing, but we must rest assured that he has his purposes in what he is doing, and that he is playing things out in exactly what his time frame is, exactly according to his plan. There are all kinds of foolish questions people ask, doubting the wisdom of God and how he has ordered things. All kinds of foolish questions. There are, there are humble ways to ask what God is doing, and there are foolish ways that assume that uh, God is fallible, that assume that uh, God could be wrong about what he's doing. For example, I recently came across someone who was pointing out that uh, God, because he didn't like what Pharaoh was doing, decided to kill all the firstborn children in Egypt. He said, well, why didn't God just kill Pharaoh? Why did he kill the firstborn children? You know, there is a very direct answer to this question in Romans 9. God raised Pharaoh up. He did not cut him down. He raised Pharaoh up in order that his glory might be known. He desired that the ten plagues reveal the magnitude of violating his holy law to be parallel to his tenfold law that he would give several chapters later in Exodus. You know, this was his intent to order things in this way. And so to think, well, I would have done things more wisely. I would have done things better. You know, you are not the potter. You are the clay. The potter has no wisdom, or excuse me, the clay has no wisdom to tell the potter how he is to do his job. You know, we must have the right understanding of our relationship to him and God's wisdom. God is above all things. Christ is above all things. All things are happening according to his purpose. And so we have to see things with those eyes of faith. We have to understand what he is doing and that we must, we must trust him. We must trust him. We must not uh, trust ourselves and our own mechanisms, but rather we must trust him to know that even though we don't see these things, we don't see all things under his reign. It is indeed under his reign. Now, as uh, 
as this world is in this humiliated state and his people are humbled for a season, so he was. And it speaks of that in the next verse. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Christ is high and exalted. He, uh, you can imagine him uh, in the presence of God uh, with all the angels. You know, what, what I mean by imagine is that he has, not, he has not ceased at any point to be God. He has not ceased at any point to be present with the Father. But yet, in taking on the nature of man, he has, he has taken on, in this second nature, a humility that he did not have to take on. And so he has a perfect, as the song we were just singing talked about, you know, a perfect bliss with the Father. And for him to take on humility and come down to be with us, is uh, not something that is owed to us. It is not something that he had to do. It is something that is a, a voluntary condescension on his behalf. So he has left behind these things to, be, to humble himself. And so he walked this earth as a man, subject to the same things that we are, stubbing your toe, getting sick, uh, being betrayed by friends, being brutally beaten in ways that none of us have experienced here. He has experienced all that we have and more. He has experienced the fullness of, uh, of human suffering. And he has engaged in that, in that humility. But it is only a temporary thing. And if it is only a temporary thing, him who is made lower than the angels for a little while lower than the angels, and it is a guarantee that our situation, likewise, is a temporary one. If he rules over, if he has temporarily experienced humility and is now glorified, likewise, those people who are under him, their humility is a temporary thing prior to their glorification. Now, I'd like for you to consider for a moment that phrase, who was for a little while lower than the angels. You can see that that's quoted from the passage earlier in verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. And as we looked at last week, this is from Psalm 8. Now, if you're fairly familiar with the scripture, you know that this is not how it actually sounds in Psalm 8. That if you read Psalm 8 in your Bible, it says that man is made a little lower than the angels, not a little while lower than the angels. So what's, what's going on there? Well, uh, as this is translated into Greek, uh, this word is used to mean a little lower than the angels. Now, in Hebrew, it's plain that it means a little lower. In Greek, this word braku could mean, it could mean a little or a little while. Often it's used to mean a little while, a little period of time. In fact, uh, you might even speak this way, you know, can I have a little, um, where, you, where you don't finish the sentence and you just assume that people know that you need a little time. Right? And so that is the way that this word is often used in Greek. And so uh, it's frequently used this way. And so the translators of the ESV have decided to translate it a little while lower rather than, rather than a little lower. Now, it could be translated either way. This is not one of those situations. Some of you may be familiar. There's sometimes when it comes into Greek, you have something entirely different. This is just one of those times where uh, the word 
Uh, there's just not a, an exact word. In fact, there's a word that has multiple meanings. And so what Paul seems to be doing here is taking advantage of the fact that this word has multiple meanings. I say Paul because uh, I, I'm a little biased as to who wrote Hebrews. <laughs> uh, but the author of Hebrews uh, is taking advantage of this fact that this word has multiple meanings to point to the fact that this is temporary. And this is something he'll do elsewhere in Hebrews. Uh, later on, he talks about how without, without a death, um, a covenant is not enforced. And it doesn't actually... Uh, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense if you read it in a Bible where it says covenant. And many translations, it'll say will, because in Greek, covenant and a will are, are just the same word. And so there he's uh, playing on the fact that this could also be a will. Same thing is happening here. He's, he seems to be playing on the fact that this word could mean a little while. That he has been temporarily made lower than the angels. This is a temporary thing. If it is a temporary thing, then it is indeed the case that our humiliation is likewise temporary. You know, do you realize how much that can free you from if you recognize that our situation here on this earth is temporary? A lot of people feel bound. They are enslaved to things thinking that this is our permanent situation. You know, they feel bound to build empires for themselves thinking that this is a permanent situation. If it is not permanent, if our situation on this earth is temporary, you can leave all that behind and serve Christ any way he has called you. You know, if someone offends you, a lot of people feel bound that it is necessary that they must defend their honor. If it is guaranteed that there will one day be a day of vindication before all mankind, there's no reason to fight for that now. You know, if someone throws down a glove, how many people feel like, I must pick that up? and defend my honor. You know, that being an image from how they used to do duels. People feel bound to defend themselves, to self-preserve, to build empires for themselves. All these things they are enslaved to do. They don't think of themselves as slaves. They think of themselves as free and doing things out of their own liberty. But in truth, they have no other option because this is the only thing they know. However, if you recognize that Christ's humiliation is temporary, and he is leading us in that path, our humiliation is temporary, then it is the case that you can be free from all these things. You can serve Christ the way he has called us to. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to, to be self-serving. You can rather be other-serving. You can rather love others with a great generosity, knowing that he is good, that he will make all things right in the end, that all good deeds will be rewarded, and that, and that every uh, false accusation, that people will be vindicated from every single one. These are all the case. You know, uh, think about how long Christ was on this earth, uh, experiencing this, this temporary humility. It's 33 years, right? 33 years in the span of however long this earth is. Uh, it's a very, very short period of time. You know, 33 years even in a lifetime is, is not very long. Now, take it smaller. Let's say it was uh, 33 hours, right? That, think of 33 hours in a year. It's not very much. 33 hours in a year is not very much. 33 minutes in a year is very little, and we still haven't gotten to the ratio between your lifespan here and eternity. Now, take it down to 33 milliseconds. 
compared to a lifetime or a year. You know, it's just, that's just nothing. Now, 33 nanoseconds. If we just kept going smaller and smaller, would we ever reach that point where we've compared this lifespan you are experiencing here to eternity? We'll not. You could go smaller and smaller and smaller, and it's still not an exact analogy for how long this life is compared to eternity. This is a blip. This is nothing. And so to endure in this world is such a small, small thing. If you have those eyes that see how far out that infinite ray of eternity goes. You know, how, how easy is it to bear with something just for a second? It's so easy because you know that it's going to be over in just a moment. If you can see that your life is only a blip, if you can recognize that truth and embrace that truth, how easily can you give up all these things that people hang on to for dear life and are enslaved to hang on to? You can give it these things so easily. Now it continues on and says, we see him that was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now, uh, the first thing I'll say here is that there's a little ambiguity on how the word because could be understood. Your Bible translation will make this clear for you. And in the ESV, it doesn't put a comma uh, before because, so it's very clear that he's crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering. Right? However, if you imagine someone might put a comma there before because, and then it sounds like he was a little while lower than the angels because of his suffering. Right? So that would be one potential way of, of reading this, that he's a little while lower than the angels because of his suffering. But consider this. How long was he a little lower than the angels? This is not just uh, that suffering on the cross. It was his, his whole lifespan, his whole ministry. He was uh, made lower than the angels. And so this is not speaking of that. Rather, the because is, as you read in the ESV, it is, uh, he has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. You see, that temporary humility has led him uh, into glory. That he has, because he has pleased the Father in doing this, the Father has highly exalted him, given him the name above every name. He is high above all things. So he is, he was high above all things. He is in the incarnation been made a little while lower than the angels, and because of that, God has crowned him above all. I'll also say here, when it says that we see him, so uh, connect these two halves of the sentence, you know, but we see him, who for a little while, etc., crowned with glory and honor. We see him crowned with glory and honor. So uh, occasionally the Bible speaks about us seeing Jesus, for example, in Galatians 3.1, it says that he was put before your eyes as crucified, now, I do not think, though, that this is talking about some special uh, spiritual sight that we have of Jesus. A lot of times when you hear this verse spoken of, people say, we see Jesus. You know, they're, they're talking about some kind of special spiritual sense we have of him. Now, indeed, if we have been given the Holy Spirit, we have a way of contemplating him and understanding him that the world does not know because of special spiritual sense that God has given us. That is, that is true. But consider what this verse is saying in context. It has just said that at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him crowned with glory and honor. You know, if you cut out that parenthetical statement in the middle about him being made a little while lower than the angels. 
We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him crowned with glory and honor. Now, now consider those, if we're talking about whether or not we have some special spiritual sense. And on the first hand, if this is talking about physical sight, do we think, see everything in subjection to him? No, we don't. Do we, see, uh, do we see him crowned with glory and honor? We actually don't see that either, right, if we're talking about physical sight. So if we're talking about physical sight, we don't see either of these things. Now let's talk about spiritual sight. Do we see him crowned with glory and honor? Yes, the Christian sees him crowned with glory and honor. Do we see all things in subjection to him? No, we actually don't yet see all things in subjection to him. Or, excuse me, yes, we do see all things in subjection to him with eyes of faith, right? We recognize that what this is saying is true, that, uh, that he has put everything in subjection to him and all things are. So if we're talking about physical eyes, neither of these things are true. If we're talking about spiritual eyes, both of these things are true. So it's not talking about physical eyes versus spiritual eyes or some special sense. It's rather talking about the fullness of, of that manifestation, the fullness of the fulfillment of what God has done in Jesus Christ. That it is the case, it is not the case, that uh, we see all things in subjection to him, because while all things are in subjection to him, there is more yet to play out as he puts every last enemy under his feet. Yet at the same time, we do see him crowned with glory and honor. We may not see this yet, but we do see him crowned with glory and honor. This has taken place. So think about this, not in terms of uh, eyes of faith or anything like that, but rather in the, in the timeline of eschatological fulfillment, in the timeline of what God is accomplishing in history as we reach the end. Do we see all things in subjection to him? Well, all things are in subjection to him, but we don't see it yet. But, but, we see him crowned with glory and honor. It is already the case that he is crowned with glory and honor. And that is enough of a seal on the situation to let us know that all things will be put in subjection under his feet. All these things will take place because he has been crowned with glory and honor. And that has already taken place. You know, we don't, we don't see, uh, we might feel like there's some lack of in this truth because we don't th see everything in subjection to him, but it is still true. You know, if you have a wealthy man who uh, lives in a very modest home and drives a truck and wears beat-up jeans, etc., uh, but he's got a billion dollars in the bank, does that make him not a wealthy man, that he, he goes around uh, as a common man? It does not make him any less wealthy. He is still wealthy. And this is the case with Christ. Though he is choosing to conquer his enemies one by one, and not all at once, as he could so decide if he wished, that he still reigns over everything, even though he is choosing to play out that reign step by step. And so because of this, he has been placed over all things. Uh, next place I'll have you to turn. And this is the last place. Uh, Philippians 2. Please turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, very famous passage, speaks of Christ's humility and how this has resulted in his exaltation. And so, as I said, he has pleased the Father that he has come and served him perfectly. As it pleased him, God has highly exalted him. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What has been the result of his temporary humility? It is indeed glorification. God has highly exalted him above all so that every knee will bow, so that every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so as someone is reading the book of Hebrews without a biblical mindset, you know, if they're new to the faith or something like that, and they see all these statements about Jesus Christ being higher than the angels, etc., and then they look at this world and they say, well, well, I, I recall Jesus being crucified on a cross. How does, that, how does that fit with what it says about him being so much higher than the angels? That humility was only temporary, and it had the purpose of leading to his exaltation. Jesus Christ is high above all. As God, he is high above all regardless, but as, as a man, he is high above all because he has perfectly served God's people in the way he is called to, in the way he was called to. And the implications for us, as he has chosen to play out this victory stage by stage, bringing us along with him, conforming us to his image, uh, drawing us through the same pattern of humiliation, even though uh, not in a, a uh, sacrificial substitutionary way, as his death was, conforming us to his image, we are supposed to follow in the same steps of humility. And once again, do you realize what this frees you for? Consider the relationships that you have where you feel at odds with someone, you feel the need to assert your position, you feel the need to, to be right about something or to have your way. Uh, why, why is that the case? Is it the case because you feel like the way of having a better situation for yourself is through exalting yourself, is through the way to be first is to be first. Well, Jesus says the last will be first, and this is what he himself has lived. If you realize that God has exalted Christ because of his humility, and he is bringing us through those same footsteps, then that frees us to not have that mindset, mindset where we are trying to vie for our own status but rather, we can be freed to serve others, knowing that the more we engage in such service, the more we are prepared for what God has in store for us, and that he is giving us the strength by his spirit to follow in the footsteps of Christ and follow that path of glory that he is preparing us for through humbly loving and serving one another. You know, please do, you know, consider I know everybody in here has relationships. Everybody ha in here has relationships, and therefore, you have some relationships that are not as good as other relationships. So please consider those relationships and consider your attitude in them and whether or not you see them as opportunities to lose status by not getting what you want or whether you see them as opportunities to gain because as you as you follow in these footsteps, God has great things prepared for those who follow in them.
Once again, the, the Christian is free to do all kinds of amazing uh, sacrificial things, not being bound to some uh, misguided notion of glory, some misguided notion of self-preservation or, or status. You know, the, we, can think of, we can think of that humility as being some kind of chrysalis or some, uh, some cocoon. You know, it is, it is temporary. That temporary humility leads to an eternal glory. It continues on in this passage, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus Christ has, in that humility, in that temporary humility, tasted death for everyone. In other words, it's saying that there was a purpose to that temporary humility. Uh, so we experience temporary humility in this world. We see Christ uh, we see that he reigns, but we don't see all things in subjection to him. There is a purpose in that as well. And the purpose of this one thing, him being made a little while lower than the angels, has been so that he might, by the grace of God, taste death, death for everyone. Now, how is this by the grace of God? Well, first of all, what is this? He tasted death for everyone in that he died in the place of all who trust in them so that they might not have to die uh, in an eternal sense. Rather, they can have eternal life. It, even though, this is another thing that is true now, though we do not yet see it, we have eternal life. Those who have trusted in Christ, they have eternal life. It's not something they will have in the future. We have eternal life, and even though we will die, we will be raised again, and then that eternal life will be seen, because it will continue on forever. And so, Christ has died in the place of those who have violated God's law, deserve death, uh, are enemies of him, if they turn to him in faith, if he draws them to himself, they will be saved from that fate so that they might have this life. And this is by the grace of God. You know, this is not by, I've been talking about the importance of following Christ's footsteps. It is not by doing those things you earn some state of glory. Rather, uh, Christ has earned that glory, and in part of his process of bringing his people into that state of glorification, the resurrection, he has determined that by his Spirit, preparing steps beforehand for his people, he will lead them into those same steps. So he is still the one who has earned it, but he has decided that the way that that will be enacted, the way that that will be uh, uh, um, realized is through following in similar steps to his own. So it is still by grace. It is even though we are called to follow in his footsteps, even though we are called to, to service, to humility, these are not things where uh, we are then earning our salvation, but rather Christ has earned it and has decided that it is right for us to be conformed to his image in following in these things. And he, he does not uh, give us these things because we have done these things. Rather, he empowers us by his spirit that we might walk in those steps and follow all the way. And when it says that he has tasted death for everyone, that, that tasting of death is not, does not mean that uh, he tasted it but did not really partake of it, did not really uh, die. No, he really had death. The word taste is just to, uh, just to emphasize the temporariness, the, the fact that this humiliation was temporary. You know, some people look at this and they say, oh, he tasted death. He had, he had just a little taste, but he was not, he did not really 
experience the fullness of death. No, he experienced the fullness of it. He experienced the fullness of it in a way that those who trust in him will never experience because we will not experience the wrath of God. You know, we may be in the grave longer than his body was in the grave, but we will not suffer that wrath if we have trusted in him. That wrath of God will be something that we will be free from because Christ has tasted that on behalf of all who trust in him. And so these are not things that are available to those who have not trusted in him. These are not available to those who do not follow in those steps that God has prepared beforehand for his people. These things are not, these things are not available to the world. Rather, the world will uh, continue on, vying for its own self-preservation, trying to exalt itself, and ending up humiliated. Yet we, who have been saved by Jesus Christ and have been given his spirit, will be led in the steps that God has prepared beforehand for us into that humility, into that service, in order that we might be glorified with him. And this is what it says in uh, Hebrews 8, 16 through 17. It says that, it says that we will be co-heirs with him, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. It is necessary that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. And so as you see the suffering in this world that you experience, know that that is not purposeless. Uh, it is purposeful, and it's not just something to be born and endured. It is also something to uh, acknowledge as a privilege, that it is a privilege to follow in the footsteps of Christ, to be made like the greatest one who ever existed. Imagine if Christ made it so that he just immediately conquered all his enemies and did not bring his church through this process. None of us would have the privilege of sharing this with Christ. And this is what it's going to get to in, in uh, subsequent passages that Lord willing will look at in the future. That what makes it so that he is not ashamed to call us brothers, so that, that we truly are brothers, is a sharing in this suffering together with him. This is something that is not just to be endured, but it is rather a privilege to be made like him, the one that is high and exalted above all others. And this is, this is something worth leaving behind. Uh, all, the, all the things that you have in this world, to leave it all behind for the sake of him, for the sake of this wonderful thing that he has in store for us, for the sake of his glorious kingdom, and to share with him in being an heir of all things, in being glorified in the resurrection. He has tasted death to give us a wonderful, a marvelous victory that we already have, though we do not yet see. And you can know that if it has already been accomplished, if he already reigns, then the fact that we do not yet see all things in subjection to him does not invalidate the fact that they are indeed in subjection to him, because just as his humiliation and his earthly ministry was temporary, so is ours here in this earth if we are following in his footsteps. And we will indeed one day be with him as he carries us by his power, by his sovereignty, by his Holy Spirit. We will one day be with him and enjoy that world forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the temporary humility of Christ. We thank you for the exaltation that you have granted him. And we thank you for supplying our needs and making us to be like him and leading us 
and the paths that you lead us and preparing beforehand for us the steps in which we should walk that we would be made like him. We thank you for this great privilege to be made like our Savior. And we ask that you would give us uh, the right attitude regarding these things, that we would not be bitter, that we would not be uh, despairing, but rather that we would count it a joy and a privilege to be made like him in engaging in humility, serving, and suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.